0: Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kamura. Hey everyone. We also have Valentino Stoll. Hey now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week we have a special guest and that's Greg Molnar. Greg, do you want to say hi, introduce yourself, let people know why you're cool?
1: Sure, hi everyone. My name is Greg Molnar. And uh, as an introduction, I'm a Ruby on Rails engineer for maybe 12 years now and they like 7 8 years ago i started to shift a bit towards security i did some penetration testing courses and i'm still into development and i'm splitting my time like 50 50 between security work and development these days
0: oh cool um and i can bet that you find some interesting stuff where the two intersect right where you have uh, security vulnerability in rails or Things that people don't secure. Um, we actually invited John because you wrote an article about server-side request forgery. Um, I, I think most people have heard of cross-site request forgery, uh, but this was this was new to me. Do you kind of want to give the ten thousand foot view on what this is and why we need to worry about it?
1: Yes, sure. Well, server-side request forgery is actually pretty underrated because people think that it's not a serious security issue. And the same is true for XSS. But the thing is, once you have a low-level security issue and you find another low-level one, you might chain them together and that chain can become more serious. Like with server-side request forgery, this is a good example from GitLab. GitLab is actually, I love GitLab because they are open source. So whenever there is a security issue with GitLab, you can look at the source code and see what mistakes the devs, the devs done to end up in that situation. And uh, there was a service request request in GitLab, which allowed the, a potential attacker to send requests to an internal service. And then there was another issue where they didn't uh, escape uh, share uh, shell line breaks. So chaining the two together, ended up in a in a, uh, a code execution on the server, a remote code execution on the GitLab host, which is a pretty serious thing because once you have that one, you have access to everything on the server. Right. But in Rails, it's actually enabled by, def- I think it's enabled by default, the server-side request for protection. But if it isn't, probably everyone enables it. So you are usually safe from it. But there was a time when doing like uh, AJAX request to the servers, you had to pass the token yourself so it wasn't passed automatically. And those days, a lot of folks just disabled the server-side request protection on those endpoints, mm-hmm. which could lead to security issues.
0: So how is this different? I, I don't know if I completely understood how this was different from the cross-site request forgery where, you know, yeah, you put the... Uh, how do I how do I put it? You put the key, the it's an extra field that goes in your form, right? Hidden field sends the token back, and then we know that it you know it was a request from our server within the last hour long, right? Um, and that seems to be kind of publicly facing the server side request forgery. It almost looked like it was from I don't know from from some other trusted source.
1: Yes, because it was coming from the internal network.
2: I think the lesson here is to never trust the user input.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that that's actually if you that's the main thing in security. Never ever trust anything which is coming from the user. That's always tainted, Mm -hmm. and go from there. And then whitelist everything which you think uh, could be whitelisted. But the problem here right. was that there was no, uh, no server side request forgery protection enabled for an endpoint, and it was on the server. So they created a job, and that job was executed the request on the internal network. And that's how you were able to access Redis, because it was on the internal network. And from the Redis, then you could get the uh, remote code execution.
2: Yeah, because a lot of times when we're talking about server hardening, we're usually focused on the entry points. So if you have SSH exposed, your port 80443, then mm-hmm. that's basically what you lock down, have a fail to bend and that kind of stuff. But if it's on the internal network communicating, I think that's where we usually get really relaxed with our hardening because we have our Redis, our database service, all on the same VPC or network. And we don't do too much hardening on the Redis or the database side because those are not externally accessible at all. They're locked down to just our virtual machines or whatever services within that VPC. So is that something that we should be concerned about or take further steps in hardening like only communicate over Redis over the SSL and that kind of stuff? Well, that wouldn't really
1: help because it just encrypts the the traffic. But yeah, you should always make sure internal requests are also treated like they are external. You should still verify things. You should still prevent like uh, accepting any data. You should still uh, validate things and verify that it's not like a code execution payload and stuff like that. Because even though it's coming from your internal network, maybe you make a mistake somewhere and someone can make a request which acts like it's coming from your internal network.
3: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, the whole move to Docker has kind of, like, opened up a bunch of people to this concept, right? As I think, okay, well, Docker is going to isolate a lot of these inter-service things and I won't need to necessarily, you know, think of them as external as long as they're only communicating to each other. You know, and that's kind of like Bin Docker's initial mentality, right? It's like, oh, we gain security by encapsulating, uh, you know, particular pieces of the pie, Um, and it's kind of evolving to be like, well, (laughs) doesn't doesn't necessarily work like that, right? Uh, You still need to, like you're saying, uh, make sure that all of those uh, pieces are protected and isolated and encapsulated. and I'm interested uh, what your perception on that is like from a you know a network layer piece. Like, do you, do you see more uh, security issues come up from this kind of uh, service architecture, or is it pretty much the same deal, just a different wheelhouse?
1: No, definitely, Docker just introduces another layer of insecurities. <laughs> so it it's just an extra layer. But I think I, I was never a fan of Docker, mainly because of these reasons. But I think since Rails starting to embrace it and it's kinda it's becoming the officially supported way to to deploy Ray apps, probably we need to go to that direction and just make sure we make everything more secure and look into how can we lock down everything in Docker to not have any open issues for security.
3: So this is a great like start, right? Like what what about Rails uh, protects people now from the, some of these, you know, XSRF And, you know, we can get into other pieces of it, but like, what, what, what portion of Rails specifically, uh, you know, gives us protection? And maybe what, you know, what should you worry about, even though it's there?
1: I think Rails does a great job with security. It has great def- defaults. It prevents you from a lot of stupid issues, but that also means Rails devs don't think about security. So a lot of people don't even know about uh, about potential security issues and they might end up shooting them into the leg because they don't think about security at all. Like XSS, mm-hmm. Rails, yeah. if you are using ERB, 99% of the time you are secure from XSS. But because people don't even think about XSS, they might just do something silly. Or if something changes in Rails and there's a, a new, let's say, a new tech helper which, which explicitly doesn't prevent XSS, people don't even think about checking that. I think that's a bit of a problem because security is pretty neglected in the Rails world today. If you look at last year's RailsConf, I think there was a single talk about security, which is to me a bit surprising. We should talk more about it because even though Rails <laughs> has a good job, preventing us from doing certain things you can still do. And you can still introduce logic bugs, which Rails can't prevent you from doing this.
0: Well, you know, you're you're kind of picking on Rails developers, and I guess this isn't an excuse so much as just an observation. But I talk to people in JavaScript, I talk to people in Elixir, I talk to people in a lot of other communities where they, you know, have frameworks and they have different approaches to building apps. And the vast majority of developers aren't thinking about security. It's not. It's not unique to Rails, and that doesn't excuse us from not doing it. But yeah, it's it's not like somebody in another community is picking up good habits and then just coming over here and dropping them, right? If if they transition to Ruby or Rails, it's it's a universal problem.
2: Uh, I was I was talking to this newer Rails developer. And I said, you know, hey, give me a query that can do this. And they gave me back, and they were just interpolating in stuff into a query instead of escaping it properly. Then I also asked, you know, hey, I want to run this ffmpeg script, and so give me a script that I can give it some arguments and do that kind of stuff. And it again just interpolated in the parameters that I was giving it. And so in both those cases, that's going to cause SQL injection or remote code execution. And you know, this developer's name, to call them out, was uh, ChatGPT. And <laughs> that's the <laughs> what issue jerk. that we're going to run into. I know, right? So that's what we're going to run into where, at least with something like Stack Overflow, we have our wonderful community to say, whoa, whoa, whoa what you're about to do is pretty dangerous. You know, you may want to take this approach. But with ChatGPT, it's just kind of spitting back whatever it wants to very confidently. So you think what it's telling you is going to be correct and it may actually work. But if you don't understand the security implications of what you're copying and pasting and putting into your applications, you have a much bigger issue down the road.
0: Well, I I really like ChatGPT for a lot of things but it really is the the ultimate. So I found all this stuff on the internet and I mashed it up and put it into a nicely formatted thing for you.
1: There was an interesting uh, example for ChatGPT. When Rails 7.1 will have a new feature which is called regroup. On the active record query, you can call regroup. And someone asked ChatGPT to explain what that does. And of course, ChatGPT doesn't even know about it because the training data right. is from 2020 or something. And it gave a very (laughs) confident explanation that regroup means that you can regroup the already grouped results, which is bullshit. That's not, it's just like reware. So (laughs) you already had a group by query on the active record chain, which you can replace with a different one if you need. And people thought, oh, how cool is this? Now I can regroup the already grouped record in active record, which is not true. I think that would be quite challenging to achieve with active record.
0: Yeah yeah, well, and I, I think this just illustri- illustrates the point further that, yeah, you know the training data is all based off of a lot of stuff that was on the internet at the time of the training. Um, the other thing is is that it was also trained uh, by people essentially saying this is good input or bad input, right? Um, which adds a lot of bias to the results and things like that. Um, I think most of the time, if you're trying to explain something that's generally well understood, it'll do fine. But yeah, um, anything that's new, you just kind of have to take with a grain of salt. And I think you need to verify anything you get from it anyway. But um, when I talk to people who are using it to do things like write chunks of code, it's really fascinating what they get back sometimes. And yeah, some of the issues that exist with it.
2: Yeah, because I was using it for some machine learning stuff. Uh, I was getting into Python and to PyTorch. And that's mm-hmm. not my wheelhouse. I don't know a lot of what it's actually doing with the epochs and all that junk. So I was having Chad GPT, like, you no, know, just help out with some functions. And honestly, looking at it, I have no idea if I'm introducing a security issue or something, or if when I'm doing right. it safe or not, but it works. So I use that in this bit of code that I was playing around with. So I think. Well, it can help us. I think it's the overconfident junior developer who just doesn't quite have the experience yet, but can talk about it very confidently.
0: Or the business person who thinks that they're taking an
3: economic shortcut. I think the biggest problem here is copy paste mentality.
2: <laughs> right? No, so we've been doing that for years. I mean, well, I mean,
3: <laughs> e- even if you like, even say that like, you open up Rails source code and you say, oh, this is a really, you know, nice snippet of code, you know, I'm going to reuse this in my portion. And then they go and they say, well, you know, the security team found that there's an issue with this code, but you don't know that because you don't follow the source code that closely. And so now you have a security issue that has been fixed, but because you extracted it from somewhere else, right, like it it has a security issue. I feel like this is probably like, from like a mid- even junior level, like if you're just like moving around code like this, this is probably one of the most common ways to expose yourself to security risks, right? Is where you're just like taking something where you found, repurposing it, and then it's lost to any upstream changes. You know, uh, I yeah, don't know but I do that. A good fix to that. Yeah, I mean, I do it too. Uh, but right. you know, I mean, that's that worked great right over reason. here. Yeah. It's all the more reason why it's a great example of how problematic it is, right? Like, you know, what is a good way, you know, Greg, do you have any ideas for this on how to better strategize this kind of development so that it's a little safer outside of, oh, just learn security?
1: I think that's tricky, but I think this is what really shows why it's important to kind of outsource your most important security related parts, like authentication, don't roll your own authentication. Because then let's say you use device, and if an issue found in device, you are being notified about it, you can upgrade and it's all fixed for you. But if you mm-hmm. roll your own authentication, and let's say you use some APIs from Rails, which, is, which they find a security issue with it, and you need to update how you use that API, then you might not know about it. Like there is this new authentication jam uh, called Authentication Zero. Maybe you guys heard mm-hmm. about it. And what mm-hmm. that does, that's not really a jam, it's a uh, generator. So you install it, you call the generator, it generates all the code for you. But from then on, if there is a security issue with the code it generated, how are you going to know about it? You can't just easily upgrade Actually, I think now what they do is every release, they have like a release note where they tell you. So when you run bundle update, you will see at the output that we found this security issue and you have to do these changes in your code to upstream or downstream mm. your change or changes. <clears throat> but I think that's, that's the important thing. Anything which is security conscious you should rather use something which is maintained by other people who know security better than you. Like encrypting crypto, I'm terrible with cryptography. So I just try to rely on people who are smarter than me on that. I wouldn't roll my own cryptography because it's just out of my depth. But you can use something which Rails provides and that's usually reviewed by security professionals, by cryptographic professionals, and it should be safe to rely on those and just always watch the news. If there is a security release, which we just had for AS two days ago, I think, then upgrade as soon as you can.
0: Yeah, but even then, I mean, I I put, on, on any given project, I mean, the small ones I might add 20 gems to, right? You know, because I'm pulling in stuff that I don't want or need to write. Um, you know, and then I can just, you know, patch it together for my needs, um, it's really hard even just to keep up with that or the, or it's dependencies, right? So, um, you know, I pull in a device and it depends on Warden and a whole bunch of other stuff. It depends on some other stuff. that depends on some other stuff. And so um, that just seems impossible to me. But even just the, you know, the bunch of gems I'm using to just kind of compose a Rails app, if there's a vulnerability in any of those, I don't always hear about it, right? Um, And so, if there's a zero day in one of the gems that even just Rails itself uses, I may not hear about it for a month or two, and I'm out there running, you know, with my vulnerabilities flapping out there in the wind for anybody to take advantage of. And so, um, it's it's still a hard problem.
1: There's a solution to that problem. It's called bundle audit. Huh? If you run bundle audit on your CI server, let's say daily, or just on every pull request, mm-hmm. then whenever a security release is published for any of your dependencies, then you are notified about that. And you know, I need to upgrade.
0: That's a good tip. And I always forget that's there.
1: Well, that's the thing with security. We forget things. We overlook yeah. things. We make the wrong assumptions. And that's how you introduce yeah. a security yeah. vulnerability. It's not that people are not, smart enough or not good enough. It's just we are humans. Humans make mistakes.
0: Well, I like, though, that you said put it in your CI pipeline, right? So now it's in a workflow that automatically runs and so I don't have to be smart enough to run it every dang time, right? I have a computer out there that says you checked in code and I know I need to run this every time and it just does it for me.
2: I like doing it as a git hook so that way Mm -hmm. before I even push up it barks at me so that way I don't yeah, I definitely don't forget about it. But I was going to say, running a, just blindly running a bundle update, especially if you don't have version locks within your gem file, can also be a security issue. Mm-hmm. Especially if a particular gem has been hijacked by someone else, they issue, they inserted in some malicious code and released a new version. You could be pulling in malicious code without even knowing about it. You think that, oh, there's a new version of this gem, so that's good, that's safe, going to be more secure, more performant or whatever. But you don't really know unless you're actually going in and reviewing the code changes of all those gems. Yeah, definitely. What you should do when you upgrade any of your gems, you should go and check the changelog
1: on GitHub because if it's been hijacked, then what you see on GitHub is uh, different from what the actual gem is. And you might see that, oops, they don't actually have this tag on GitHub. So why do I get this update from RubyGems? And then you can investigate Mm -hmm. and maybe realize, oops, it's not from the gem authors. It's just the RubyGems account is hijacked. But now I think RubyGems now has two FA's, so it's less likely to get accounts hijacked.
2: Yeah, I don't think that happens too often, but uh, I thought that, there was a case of that happening in the past couple of years.
1: Yeah, there were a few yeah. cases. And it was because people used uh, very easy-to-guess passwords on RubyGems. And it was brute force, their account were brute force. And
2: then people could just push any release on their yeah. name. I think they were around some crypto gems, like Bitcoin gems and stuff.
3: Thankfully, though, now that RubyGems requires two-factor authentication for you know, a certain number of downloads, right? I forget what the limit is now but they it's a re- hard requirement for certain gems uh to have two factor authentication i think for this reason uh i don't i don't know how low that limit is
1: <laughs> i think if you have more than i don't know the exact limit but if you have more than a few thousand downloads for your gem then you have to enable 2fa mm.
2: it's like why would you not do that anyways <laughs> you know um, inconvenience, I know, but <laughs> we we can trade that con- is. inconvenience for a different kind of lack of security. Like with one password or any other password manager, now you can have your two FA QR code scanned by that password manager. Which I mean, that's kind of putting all your eggs in one basket. So I don't know if I really recommend that, but I mean, at least it's there. Yeah, that's true, but it's always the extra step. The problem with security, security is inconvenient.
1: If you want to be secure, then you need to take some extra measures. And That's why people sometimes choose the easy path and don't take security seriously enough. Like they don't use a password manager because it's just easier to type in the same password everywhere all the time. Or they don't use 2FA because that requires an extra step. You need to pick up your phone, get the code, etc. But you can get a security key. I use a security key, which is plugged into my laptop, so I can just touch it and it's all done. I have my second factor.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah, I
2: love the YubiKeys. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I have the YubiKeys. Cloudflare actually had a promotion. It's ended now, so sucks to be you if you didn't get it. But they sold the YubiKeys for $10 a pop. They're normally like $40 or something. So I got a handful of them that I'm going to give out as gifts the family and stuff.
0: Yeah, it's interesting with the 2FA. Just, you know, like I use it for all of my stuff, but like getting my
3: wife or my in-laws or my mom to use it. it even to like, it's, it's hard because like, you know, password managers even have two-factor authentication built into it, which I don't necessarily agree with because like, it's kind of just like putting all your eggs in one basket. Like if somebody... You know, God forbid somebody got access to your, you know, (laughs) master key and was able to get into your password manager. Uh, But then they also have your two factor also. So it's like, why have them both there? (laughs) Uh, It doesn't really add any value to me. But um, I don't know. (laughs) I I was going to ask you, Greg, about uh, your article because you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, how hard it is to detect and like monitor for these server-side request forgeries. Um, I mean, is there anything monitoring-wise that you can do to kind of help, uh, assist?
1: Well, I think what you should, but every Rails application should have is have some sort of a static code analyzer run on it, like Breakman. There's another one called Spectre, mm-hmm. which I created. And there is a new one, which I just, just see this week. I think it's called b or something like that. And uh, because that helps you to catch issues before you deploy them to production. So you write some code changes, you run the checks on it, and it basically it analyzes your code for potential vulnerable code snippets. And if you have any it highlights that you can review it and maybe it's a false positive or you can fix it. And then the next thing is just logging on the server. So, for instance, you can, and also hardening the server, like disable anything which can make outgoing uh, requests from the server if you don't have to do any uh, outgoing requests and just log everything and get alerted if there is anything suspicious going on on the server. Like, you know, nobody should run like a database dump except your backup system. So if you see any... If you log all those queries and you have alerts on those, if you use Datadog or something which can runs, to, if you can you can configure it to analyze your logs and if it sees any pattern then you get an alert. You can configure that to help with security, like analyzing the logs and if any interesting things are found then it just alerts you. Because the other thing with security, it's it's one thing to try to prevent security issues and it's another one to react when you have one, because sometimes companies don't even know that they got hacked. Cyber criminals these days are professional business people. They try to make as much money out from you as they can. They are not going to deface your application. They try to stay stealthy.
0: Right.
1: And that's why people don't even notice sometimes they got hacked. They just, get the, they just realize when their data is on sale on the black markets someone just extracted all of their data. And then they get the fines from the authorities because they didn't follow all the security practices they should have. So I think that those are the things you can do to to prevent security issues and to react on those issues.
3: Uh, I'm curious, Greg, what's the wildest uh, security disclosure that you've seen?
1: The wildest, I think it's Heartbleed. It was quite a few years ago, but the interesting thing about Mm -hmm. Heartbleed Someone wrote a security book, a book about cybersecurity. And he actually discussed (laughs) that vulnerability years before it got, it became found. So it was out in the open, but nobody actually realized that issue is real because nobody looked at the source code and Harvard was in open SSL and it was maintained by one guy who just did it for like out of passion and every big company was relied on it like google facebook everybody so that's a very interesting story how all those big companies didn't spend a, a penny on that project they used it they relied on it and then of course when a security
2: issue hit everybody was surprised yeah that some guy in nebraska in 2003 right yeah the xkcd comic for those who don't yeah listen.
1: And there was also another one, which I think it's very interesting to just highlight how, how stealthy these people are. There was a Ukrainian gang who had into a news outlet in the States, and they were monitoring all the press releases. And this news outlet was uh, working, uh, it was publishing about the stock markets. So these guys got the info before it was public about certain companies, and they were trading stocks based on the inside information before it got published. Oh, and they wow. They of millions of dollars before they got caught.
0: Man, I remember all the trainings I went through at Morgan Stanley where they were like, you can't, right? All the warnings about not doing the insider training and how, how carefully you have to guard that information, so. You no,
2: know, working for a company after they've had a breach like that really sucks. I heard uh, just some horror stories of people who worked at Some companies that had data breaches, and so even the developer computers got locked down so hard you couldn't even run uh, a bundle installer, add gems into your gem file because I mean it was just all locked down. Which I mean, Mm -hmm. in retrospect, isn't a horrible thing. No, it keeps things a lot safer at the expense of the convenience. Like you said, you know, security is inconvenience. So it's, how far do we want to take it? Are we being too cautious if we lock everything down so hard to where it's inconvenient? Or is there a middle ground where some things are acceptable security risks? You need to be
1: pragmatic about it, I think. So you need to find the middle ground and make like a risk assessment how likely you are going to be hacked. And it it depends on the company. If you're a bank, of course, you need to take everything super... Seriously, like mm-hmm. don't, don't have the same network available in your lobby than what you are using in, in the back office that should be all separated on the network level. But if you are just a, let's say, a web agency, of course, you can have the same Wi-Fi, the same network for your workers and for everybody who just comes in for a meeting because you don't have a huge security risk with that. I worked for a security agency. The, re- the way I got into security is I took a Ruby job for a company who were a security agency. And those guys, they were crazy about security. Like we had three different networks in the office for every, for each, each was totally separated. And depending on your role, you had access to those. And like getting mm-hmm. into the office was not like getting into a regular office. You had to go through security checks. <laughs> So those guys took it really st- seriously. Yeah, yeah. And this Everything was hosted on their own infrastructure. Deploying things was so complicated <laughs> because of the security concerns they had. It was unbelievable. It was very, very inconvenient. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think paranoia plays into that a bit as well because I have four different networks in my home. So I have some servers in my home. Those are on a completely separate VLAN. Then I have my work where I have my workstations and stuff. That's on a completely separate VLAN. Then I have anything that the kids or IoT devices access on a separate VLAN. So their computers, are doorbell things, security cameras are on a separate VLAN. Then I have a fourth one for guests. So if they come in and want to use our Wi-Fi, then they cannot access any of my servers, my home computers, the kid's stuff, they could just access whatever's on that land. So, maybe I'm just paranoid, but I like that separation of concerns. Yeah, that's that's a pretty nice setup.
3: You know, I think education on like security practices is like probably most important at your employee level. Right? Cuz like if you think about all the major like you know, security breaks. Like I, I, the one that comes to mind is LastPass, right? Where they they just can't catch a break. Uh, but you know, it's like some somebody, you know, on a different company's uh, had a like, you know, uh, a VPN that was behind oh, I was Plex, so they had a, like a Plex that was like behind a couple versions, and they had exposed to the public internet, and the they had like exploited to like get through Plex. To like access some credentials that they had stored, that they were using it for their work computer to, and then they used that. Right, it was like a step by step process where they had like just targeted somebody at a company that they knew would have access to what they wanted, and because that they had not followed the proper, you know, security practices on their own, they had infiltrated kind of like through a server side request forgery uh, through a series of events, right. Uh, but it seems like this is a common pattern, right? Where like, you know, people just aren't, uh, you know, fl- holistically following the best practices uh, and that creates the exploit, right? And it's like not necessarily one individual thing. It's not, you know, XSS. Uh, it's it's not, you know, server request forgery, right? Like it's uh, a whole series of things where it, it really stems from education, right? Where all of the people... Aren't following the practices, and that's the flaw. Like, is there is there something that outside of just like completely overhauling <laughs> your security practices? Like, what are some things people uh, do um, to help like create that balance amongst their employees?
1: I think that's a difficult problem to solve, but you should so you should solve it on the technical level. So I think LastPass made a huge mistake because they didn't encrypt everything which they should have, and that's what they said: we encrypt everything for you, but that was a big lie. And what you always need to think about, okay, here is my server. It's open to the public. What if someone gets access to it? Okay, now they are on my network. What can they do if you are on my network? If everything is encrypted, which are sensitive data, they might not be able to do anything issues because they can extract all the information, which is kind of okay. It's still not okay, but it's not super sensitive. But if you don't encrypt the important bits, then of course you have a problem. It's like you actually are exposing data, which you shouldn't, if someone gets access to your network, and then you can take it in like steps like this. Always do a risk assessment and take it uh-huh. step by step. What if they get access to the data? What can they do with the data? Will I be notified if they get access to the data? That's why Rails encryption is really cool now. It's super easy to encrypt certain fields in the database. If you want them to be non-deterministic, that's that's also possible, but then you can't search on it or you can make it deterministic, which is a little less secure, but at least you can search on that data. So I think that was the main problem with LastPass. They didn't encrypt things which they told us they do. And that's why I don't like this whole cloud hosted password manager stuff. I used 1Password for a long time, but now they are forcing everybody to use the 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 cloud-hosted vault, which I don't want to. I want to own my vault. I want to see that it's an encrypted chunk of bytes. And I know if I don't know my master key, nobody's going to access it. I can put it out in the open and nobody can access it. But I only know this for sure if I see the actual file. If they store it in the cloud, how can I verify that?
0: That's fair. One one of the nice things with the cloud password managers, though, is the ability to share credentials, right? So I have some folks that work for me that aren't local to me. And so I have to give them my password. I don't necessarily want to copy and paste it into Slack and say, here you go, right? So yep. how do you get around that?
1: The way I get around it, I made a little tool for myself. It's actually open source. It's a real set. It's uh, it's hosted on secrets.spectrehq.com, and what this does is you can enter any data, and you click a button, it encrypts it in your browser, so the server actually never knows your keys, and you can send them a link, and you can send let's say you emailed them the link. Here is here you can retrieve this password, to this service, and you text them or you send them in a Twitter DM or whatever, or an instant message, the decryption key. So you separate the two, and then they can connect it, they retrieve the data, and then the data is deleted from the server. So you pass the data in a pretty secure manner to anyone who needed to access it, and then they can save it in their own password manager. It's not as convenient as clicking a button in one password, but at least you are not putting all of your data into the cloud.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but I did read up on the LastPass stuff and switched to 1Password. So now I'm starting to think that maybe, I don't know. <laughs> You're making me think about the way I do things.
1: Yeah, I think 1Password used to be great. But the reason I'm not using 1Password anymore because I switched to Linux a few months ago. And uh-huh. on Linux, on, on the Mac, you can still buy your own client, which works with a local vault. So you can post your vault wherever you want. But on Linux, they don't have that version. They only have the new version, okay. which is cloud-based. Which I was like, I'm not going to use that.
3: So, I mean, I think, too, it depends what you're, you know, storing in your passwords. <laughs> like, what what their accounts are for, right? Like, <laughs> if, you're, if you're trying to, like, I don't know, like, order DoorDash or something, like, maybe the convenience of having a 1Password is is nice uh, or, or something that you use frequently that doesn't really affect too much, right? Um,
1: yeah, well, I have my Portuguese government access stored in my password manager and they don't have 2FA, which is ridiculous. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone gets my password, they can issue invoices in my name, they can, Screw me up really badly.
3: I'm oh, wow. I'm honestly surprised how many uh, people choose two factor authentication over SMS. Still, uh, it seems to be like the default for banks, which is mind blowing to me. Um, <laughs> What's the
0: default for banks?
3: If you like a the typical bank two factor authentication is typically over text message, like an SMS, yep. which is like not really a Secure way to deliver that because uh, it can be uh, there are ways to intercept right and and spoof mm-hmm. it and uh, I don't know to me that's not really a, a good way to do it maybe it's like a good stopgap um, but for like some for for things like banks I feel like you know there are so many other options that are way more secure that it seems like a weird default to me.
1: Yeah, definitely, because you can do Swim Swapping. and If you target someone, you know that guy has millions in the bank. And then you know their phone number, you know which phone number they use. You do, you do some social engineering and then you get you swap their Swim to your own device. You get the code you are in, you do the transfer. But now banks actually, should, at least in Europe, if you transfer an amount over a certain threshold, they don't let that go through. They tell you to call their call center and authorize the payment, the transfer. But then you can also, maybe you can pass that as a malicious actor, because I did that once with my bank and then the lady didn't speak English. So she said, oh, I need to transfer it to someone. He transferred me to the next guy. The next guy told me, oh, Mr. Molnar, so you want to do this transfer? I said, yeah, 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 just, I would like to do it. Please let it go through. He said, okay, it's all done. Have a good day. I was like, oops sorry, but you didn't actually check if I am Mr. Molnar. (laughs) I've been just transferred to this by someone else. And he said, oh, seriously? I I thought my colleague already checked your your, uh, identification. I was like, no, no, no. She didn't ask me any question except my name and my account number, which is public information, basically. (laughs) So sometimes they do mistakes. But it's humans. Humans make mistakes. You need to accept that.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting too, because that, you know, you talking about the human mistakes, uh, reminds me of the book Ghost in the Wires. Um, and he talks about some of the exploits where he would call one person, then he'd get enough information to call the next person. And eventually he had enough information about the organization and who the people were and what they did that he could call up and act like he was somebody that belonged because he knew enough to, fake it and then he would get them to give him you know information that allowed him to uh, get into places and systems that he shouldn't have
3: Are you talking about kevin mitnick
0: kevin mitnick yep yeah that's technical,
2: technical at all
0: it's <laughs> yeah it's it's so wild uh, but i uh, highly recommend it as a book
2: we sit down at dinner with the kids I'll sometimes play a game with them where I will give them a scenario and then have them respond and we'll go through like the whole question back and forth and then at the end I'll tell them the mistakes that they made like uh, I'm some bad actor trying to get information from them and you know they will say no my brother doesn't do this I'm like well you just gave me more information that I did not have before. Now I know you have a brother and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. trying to prep their minds early to, I guess, be non-trusting of outside uh, folks and stuff because you never know when someone's trying to get information from you so they can use it later to attack you.
0: Well, it's funny too because you get businesses. I have businesses call me up, right? Because they've got, you know, they they need me to pay a bill or something, right? You know, I, I didn't get it in the mail or my kids lost it or something, right? And so I'm a week late and they want me to pay the bill. But in order to verify it, they call me up and then ask me to give them my personal information, right? And, and I'm always like, no, I'm not going to give that to you. And then they get all kinds of frustrated. And I'm like, wait, but you called me, right? You know, and so sometimes it's, Well, I'll just, you know, I'll find the information, I'll verify the, you know, the phone number, and then I will call that phone number and I will take care of things, right? But I'm not going to just give you my home address and my debit card number so that I can pay my bill. Even though I do actually have a reasonable, uh, you know, I feel reasonably safe that they are who they say they are. It's just, you know, I don't know if I can trust it. And it's it's really funny because, yeah, I think most people, they call up, they're like,
2: oh, yeah, sorry, here's my debit card number. Thanks. You know, I've actually had the same thing happen to me on a, with Amazon. So it wasn't Amazon, it was a scammer. And what they did mm-hmm. was, uh, somehow, they were able to make a few small transactions on my bank account. It was just a few dollars mm-hmm. and stuff, but it was enough to where I noticed it and so on that transaction online, I saw a phone number next to the transaction. And so I Googled that phone number and it was immediately flagged as a known scammer. So I then contacted my bank and then had my bank, you know, verify and remove those transactions. But I mean, I have no idea how they did that crap. It's crazy. But I'm sure a lot of people would fall for that where they would just call that number on their bank statement thinking that like, oh, this is wrong. I need to call the bank or call this company. And then they give out even more information that will probably further authorize more larger transactions to be withdrawn.
0: But they had enough information to impersonate Amazon.
2: Or they just... I mean, you can really make anything show up on a big transaction. Mm-hmm.
0: We're, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time here. Um, are there other security things that most Rails developers overlook, Greg? Because, yeah, like you said, um, Rails kind of does a lot for you in this area. And so I'm just wondering, you know, are there glaring mistakes that I'm missing because I just assume that Rails is picking up the tab on a lot of this stuff?
1: Uh, there are a few interesting things which people wow. don't know that are insecure in Rails by design. But I think the the most well known is link to, so if you call link to, it takes the first parameter is the string which will be the the href attribute's text, and the second parameter is about the href attribute will be on the link. But according to the HTTP specification, that attribute that uh, href attribute can contain a URL, and the URL can have any oh how do they call the first part? It's any handler. So that handler can be a JavaScript handler. So if you accept, let's say you Mm. have a website where you allow your users to enter their website's domain, their website link, and you don't validate that. They can just put, instead of HTTPS colon slash slash, they can just put JavaScript colon slash slash and the JavaScript payload. And whenever someone clicks that link, that JavaScript will be executed in their browser. That's a not so well-known one. And also the other one is uh, active record ordering. I think now with the latest Rails, they changed it, but the order clause of active record, if you passed in any user supplied data, that was not escaped at all. That was passed straight to the SQL query. So if you had like a table where you list items and you allow your users to sort by columns, and you don't use a whitelisted columns. If someone sends a SQL payload into the request in the field for this sort column, then they could get a SQL injection. But for these, there is a site called Rails SQLI, I think, RailsSQLI.com or something, where it, all of these APIs, which are insecure by design, are listed for various Rails versions. So I think it's a good idea to to read through read through those. For the XSS, it's more tricky because I don't think there is like a, a one place where you can check all of the insecure APIs of of Rails where you can when you can you need to escape things yourself if you supply user supply data to those calls and i think the other thing which every every team should have if you have someone on your team who's security conscious who's always on the lookout for security issues and you build in your into your code review process a kind of security check always question is this thing secure did we think about security when we implemented this feature how could a malicious actor circumvent things here that's a great thing to have because we all do mistakes. I write in insecure code. I, I introduced vulnerabilities into applications myself, even though I didn't intend to. But when you write code, at least I'm, when I'm writing code, I'm trying to solve a problem. I try to come up with a code which is fast, performant, and it does the job, which it should. I rarely think about security initially. It's usually an afterthought. Mm-hmm. So if you miss that step and you are like, okay, but is this actually secure as well or did I make a wrong assumption? Then you might introduce vulnerabilities. So It's always good if someone checks everything you do.
3: Yeah, you know, to add on to that, the, uh, the Ruby on Rails guides has a security section that has a great kind of summary of all the touching points to look out for and where some things Rails does, and and some things that you just have to, you know, know about. And I I always go back and read that every once in a while, because uh, I always find something new, and uh, it's, a, it's a great resource.
1: Yeah, definitely. But it's a bit big, so it's easy yeah, to miss. It's very big. So. I need to reread them, and then you absorb more and more and more all the time you read it.
3: Yeah, I wonder if there's a better way to uh, digest that.
1: I don't know, but I think if you shoot yourself in the leg once, then you will remember for the rest of your life. So if you make a mistakes and you find it out later, then you will remember to that particular issue for the rest of your life and you will prevent it always. And you will also be on the lookout for other people's changes, which would end up in, uh, with the same problem. So I think it just comes with time and experience.
0: Cool. Well. Um, I'm going to go ahead and push us into PIX um, just for the sake of time. But yeah, um, are there good places for people to go to keep up or learn more about security before we wrap up?
1: Uh, if you are into web security, I think Burp Suite, it's a, actually the company is called Ports Figure. They have really good free-to-use online resources to learn about web security, which is mainly, Rails Devs should focus on that one. Like SQL injection, XSS, server side request forgery, whatnot. They have really good guides. And if you are interested into to, into switching to a more security-focused role, then you can also play on their playgrounds and try to learn penetration testing, how to find those kind of vulnerabilities. So I think that's a good resource if someone is interested into that. The Real Security Guides. That's also which everybody should read regularly because probably don't absorb everything and in the first read. And I think those are the main ones. And just watch the news. Run bundle out it daily. And be prepared
2: mm-hmm.
1: to upgrade when you have to.
0: All right. Um, let's go ahead. Now, we did add the segment where you can do self-promo. Um, so I'm going to let Dave go first because we haven't heard from him in a while. Dave? What are you working on that people should know about?
2: I don't know if people should know about it, but I've been working on this AI stuff and it is such a pain in the butt. It's very annoying. Uh, But the biggest annoyance that i found is training models and getting good data sets. So I've been working on a audio transcription AI model. So it actually recognizes my voice, but getting sample recordings of myself into a format that you can feed into a model to train it to understand my voice is a pain in the butt. So I've actually been making a Rails application, which takes an hour-long audio clip, will break it up into the appropriate small chunks that a training model needs. And then it'll uh, allow me to insert in the manual dictations. So I have a properly trained data set And then it'll generate the data set. But even doing a 20-second clip, converting all that audio to like a matrix data points, it ended up creating like a 40 megabyte JSON file, which is insane. So I can't wait to try this on a one hour long recording. It's gonna be just crazy. But I actually plan on releasing this application so people can use it to create their own data sets to train AI models and stuff. basically having a GUI to create that data set. And I want to eventually make it where you can scrape web data, whether it's like a Wikipedia or something similar to pull in the web content to create data sets to then further train a model. So it's fun, but it's also very annoying.
0: Cool. I am working on a couple of things. I'm just going to throw them out. Oh, Valentino, let's let you go first. I just got a little excited.
3: <laughs> <laughs> sure, uh, I've been working on uh, handling files from uh, from the web uh, with the blob APIs. There's a few web APIs uh, that the browsers provide: uh, blob and uh, file. <laughs> uh, and there's a bunch of utilities that it provides that let you manipulate files and handle them and test them uh, and it's kind of been fun, <laughs> and uh, on top of that, I'm continuing doing my AI uh, <laughs> dive in uh, with Docs GPT at Doximity, and uh, looking to transition to the new, uh, you know, chat APIs, which are kind of incredible to define the context of a conversation uh, and provide a better results. Uh, it's significantly improved. Good deal.
0: Um, I've got a couple of things going on that I'm just gonna um, go for talking about here. One is is that my contract actually ends next week. So um, if you have contract work and you need somebody who has been doing Rails, uh, how long I've been doing Rails now? Nineteen years? No, not quite that long. Uh, Seventeen years. So if you um, yeah, if you, if you need somebody to help you with a project, let me know. Um, you can just email me, chuck at topendevs.com. Um, our book club is also taking off. It's It's been really great the last few times. Um, next week, we actually have Andy Hunt coming to talk to us about um, the, the seventh and eighth chapters of Pragmatic Programmer. And then Dave Thomas is going to come and help us wrap it up uh, week after next for the book club. So... Um, if you're interested in that, uh, it should be a ton of fun. Um, after that, we're doing The Compound Effect, which is actually kind of a self-improvement book by Darren Hardy. Um, it also has some business application and stuff, but very much in the vein of continuous growth and improvement and and how that growth and improvement uh, compounds on um, on itself in order to get you where you want to go. And this is something that um, I've been helping my coaching clients and and other mastermind members with on a regular basis is just learn something new every day, see how it you know adds to your process and things like that. So um, that's another thing that I've got going. And then the last uh, project that I have going that I'm working on launching is um, I'm going to do a Dev Tools video series, um, and. So basically, I'm going to be talking about like Git and Docker and stuff like that. And I'm going to be putting out tutorial videos, uh, kind of like Railscasts used to do um, or Drifting Ruby does. And uh, just, you know, providing people with, hey, here's how you do a thing in Visual Studio Code. Here's how you do a thing with Git. Here's how you run this thing with Docker. Here's how you use Docker Compose. Here's, you know, whatever other tools we're pulling in, you know. So, um, you know, I may pull in some other security tools, for example. Um, just see how that goes, and then uh, the other series that I keep getting asked about are React, and so um, I'll probably put something together for React. It means I'm going to have to learn React a lot better than I know it, but by far that's that's the request that I'm getting from people is they want training on React. Um, so but if you're doing React,
2: React. was dead. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is it not? And then, uh, not
0: quite. A lot of people using it. Um, And then the other one that I keep getting asked about, and so um, I'll probably just put something up so people can follow it as I get around to launching it, is I keep having people ask me when I'm going to start a game development podcast. And so that is the other piece I have in the works. And I want to start putting out videos like I'm talking about with the tools and React on game dev. And so I'll probably tie in some Unity stuff since I'm really good friends with Uh, Jason Wyman, who has his course um, on that stuff. And so he can help me kind of get rolling with that. Um, But it's also a way for me to connect with my 17-year-old son who wants to be a video game developer. So um, we'll get into some of the design and development stuff and start putting out content if you want to learn how to build video games. So yeah, those are my uh, things that I'm working on. Greg, what are you working on?
1: Well, what I would like to plug is I am a co-editor of a newsletter called This Week in Rails, where we every week we cover the latest changes in Rails itself. I think it's really helpful for Rails developers if they want to be in the know of the changes in the framework. Dave actually does a video cover of that most weeks. And one of my co-editors, Emmanuel, will create a podcast uh, cover of that, so an audio version of the newsletter every week, which is called the Rails Changelog. Mm -hmm. And uh, other than that, uh, I'm also writing a book about security, which is, the title is Secure Code Review for Rails Developers. It will be a very short book. It just wants to show how how to change your mindset when you do code reviews to take security into account. It's almost done, but the last 10% is always the hardest, I think, with a book or with every project, probably but it should be out eventually. And I think those are the two things.
0: Awesome, all right, well, let's do our picks. Uh, Dave, what are your picks?
2: So one thing that I've been using quite often that I really love is a push to talk button, which I'm using right now. Because whenever I'm on a meeting or something, I always fumble around to find the mute or unmute button on the browser, and maybe I'm context Mm -hmm. switching or whatever. So I have a Rolls m 11-Pro, and I love it. So if you have an XLR input for your microphone, then getting something like this has been a game changer. And it also has a little switch on the side that you can change it from a push to talk or push to mute. So it can go either way. And from what I've seen, there's no audible clicks or anything that happens when I'm enabling it or or disabling it.
0: Yeah, I used to use one of those, and I they worked terrific. And it was the rolls. Um, I don't know if it's exactly the same model, but yeah, worked great. Um, Valentino, what are your picks? Uh,
3: so I just have uh, one pick really, and. I just found it amusing, (laughs) but there's lots, so there's lots of uh, talk about GPT-4, so I guess that's a pick, Uh, Mm -hmm. which is if you don't know and follow all of this crazy uh, AI stuff and large language models, uh, it's the new advanced model that can do kind of incredible stuff. Um, Like you just take a picture of some notes you have and it makes a website out of it. Um, (laughs) Whether or not it's secure, I'll leave that in Greg's hands. Uh, (laughs) But uh, the the funny part uh, is somebody wrote uh, this prompt that uh, basically said, acted as the robot's counterpart and said, here's $100, make as much money as you can as fast as possible. And he's kind of been live, you know, blogging his... Results, if you will, and all, and just following all the recommendations that the bot tells him to make, uh, no matter what. And I, I think he was up to like 25,000 last time I saw from a hundred dollars. Oh,
0: wow. <laughs> whether
3: or not he, whether or not he lost all of it recently, I, you know, who's to say? Uh, <laughs> but I think it had, had to make a, uh, you know, a, a green, uh, you know, blogging company that, you know talked about and blogged about you know new green products and and uh different things you could do to be environmentally conscious and took outside investments (laughs) to try and make make more articles and more awareness uh it was it's pretty Mm. wild and i recommend you checking it out it's kind of a laugh
0: um i'm gonna throw in some picks i always do board game picks or card game picks uh, today's no exception. The card game I'm going to pick this time is The Crew, the quest for Planet Nine. Um, and it's it's a fairly simple card game. Effectively, what you're trying to do is it gives you quests, and they are like 50 quests, so you wind up playing, um, you know, round after round after round to complete all the quests. And each round, the quest is effectively um, somebody or certain people in your group have to take certain cards with certain tricks, um, and there are four suits. They're numbered one through nine. There's a black suit, which is the rocket suit. That's the trump suit, it has numbered one through four, and uh, I mean that's pretty much it. So um, some of the some of the time you just have to take the card. Some of the time you have to take the cards in a certain order as a group, right? So you know, so and so has to take the the blue eight first. And then so and so has to take the green for second, and then you can take the rest of them in any order. Or you know maybe the the red three and or the pink three and the yellow. No, it's not yellow. It's maybe it is. Anyway, I can't remember the colors. But you have the you know the one of them and another one just have to be in that order. One of them has to go before the other, and then the rest of them can go in any order, including between those or be ahead of them. Um, Right, and so then you're communicating. You have a communication method where you can put a card from your hand in front of you, and then you have a token that you can use to indicate whether it's your highest, lowest, or only card in the suit. And uh, once you've communicated once, that's it for the round. Um, But usually, then you're communicating, "Hey, I only have one of this this you know this suit or this color," and since you're trying to take a card in that suit or color. If somebody leads that color, I'm going to mess you up. So we've got to figure out how to get the card out of my hand before, you know, before you can go or things like that. So anyway, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Played it with my sister in law and her husband, Um, and yeah, it it was it was awesome. Uh, The rounds take about 20 minutes, and Board Game Geek ranks it as a 1.97. So like I said, real easy, casual game. My 14 year old was playing it with us. She didn't have any trouble with it. I think you could probably play it with a 10- or 11-year-old. My 7-year-old wouldn't get it. So that's kind of where I would put that game. And mostly it's because you're communicating and trying to um, think of scenarios, how you can get around some of the issues that come up with taking the tricks. But it's a cooperative game. So I'm going to pick that. Um, I am also working on a series of videos. Um, I've been working with Linode um, who actually got acquired by Akamai, incidentally. So I've been working with Akamai um, with their team. And they um, we worked out a deal where I would basically demo how to deploy the stuff that I use for the podcasts and things to Linode in exchange for hosting. And so if you're trying to figure out how to deploy Rails apps, you're looking at ways to do it. Right now, I'm using Capistrano and Passenger. Um, not that the other ways are necessarily better or worse i am seriously leaning toward getting it all deployed onto linode and then doing another series where i dockerize i have everything dockerized basically in my repos but moving it into a monorepo and then setting up some kind of deployment system where i can deploy one or all of the services involved as docker containers and then have docker compose or docker swarm or something running on a server in the cloud that that you know Manages those services that way, and and see how that kind of a deployment works. But uh, Mersk. anyway, those
2: what? Mersk, Mersk, Mersk. Mersk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mersk is the deployment utility that uh, DHH and people have wrote and contributed to, and it's very much of a Docker deployer kind of thing, and. Um, I've been playing around with it quite a bit and it's really cool.
0: Interesting. I'll check it out. All right. Well, um, those are my picks. Uh, Greg, what are your picks?
1: I have a single pick, which is a YubiKey because that makes two-factor authentication convenient and and secure. It's a bit pricey, but you only need to buy it once and it's, it's probably working for a good few years for you and then you can not worry about that much to have convenience and security at the same time.
0: Nice. All right. One more question. If people want to follow you or connect with you online, where do they find you?
1: I'm Greg Molnar on Twitter and I have also, my personal blog is on greg.molnar.io where people can find posts I wrote.
0: All right. Well, thanks for coming. We're going to go ahead and wrap up. Till next time, folks. Max out.